Section 1 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Summary. Part 1. The summer of 1967 again brought racial disorders to American cities, and with them shock, fear, and bewilderment to the nation. The worst came during a two-week period in July, first in Newark and then in Detroit. Each set off a chain reaction in neighboring communities. On July 28, 1967, the President of the United States established this commission and directed us to answer three basic questions. What happened? Why did it happen? What can be done to prevent it from happening again? To respond to these questions, we have undertaken a broad range of studies and investigations. We have visited the riot cities. We have heard many witnesses. We have sought the counsel of experts across the country. This is our basic conclusion. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Reaction to last summer's disorders has quickened the movement and deepened the division. Discrimination and segregation have long permeated much of American life. They now threaten the future of every American. This deepening racial division is not inevitable. The movement apart can be reversed. Choice is still possible. Our principal task is to define that choice and to press for a national resolution. To pursue our present course will involve the continuing polarization of the American community and ultimately the destruction of basic democratic values. The alternative is not blind repression or capitulation to lawlessness. It is the realization of common opportunities for all within a single society. This alternative will require a commitment to national action, compassionate, massive, and sustained, backed by the resources of the most powerful and the richest nation on this earth. From every American, it will require new attitudes, new understanding, and above all, new will. The vital needs of the nation must be met, hard choices must be made, and if necessary, new taxes enacted. Violence cannot build a better society. Disruption and disorder nourish repression, not justice. They strike at the freedom of every citizen. The community cannot, it will not, tolerate coercion and mob rule. Violence and destruction must be ended in the streets of the ghetto and in the lives of people. Segregation and poverty have created in the racial ghetto a destructive environment totally unknown to most white Americans. What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. It is time now to turn with all the purpose at our command to the major unfinished business of this nation, 
It is time to adopt strategies for action that will produce quick and visible progress. It is time to make good the promises of American democracy to all citizens, urban and rural, white and black, Spanish surname, American Indian, and every minority group. Our recommendations embrace three basic principles. To mount programs on a scale equal to the dimension of the problems. To aim these programs for high impact in the immediate future in order to close the gap between promise and performance. To undertake new initiatives and experiments that can change the system of failure and frustration that now dominates the ghetto and weakens our society. These programs will require unprecedented levels of funding and performance, but they neither probe deeper nor demand more than the problems which call them forth. There can be no higher priority for national action and no higher claim on the nation's conscience. We issue this report now, four months before the date called for by the President. Much remains that can be learned. Continued study is essential. As commissioners, we have worked together with a sense of the greatest urgency and have sought to compose whatever differences exist among us. Some differences remain, but the gravity of the problem and the pressing need for action are too clear to allow further delay in the issuance of this report. Part 1. What Happened? Chapter 1. Profiles of Disorder the report contains profiles of a selection of the disorders that took place during the summer of 1967. These profiles are designed to indicate how the disorders happened, who participated in them, and how local officials, police forces, and the National Guard responded. Illustrative excerpts follow. Newark. It was decided to attempt to channel the energies of the people into a nonviolent protest, while Lofton promised the crowd that a full investigation would be made of the Smith incident, the other Negro leaders began urging those on the scene to form a line of march toward the city hall. Some persons joined the line of march, others milled about in the narrow street. From the dark grounds of the housing project came a barrage of rocks. Some of them fell among the crowd. Others hit persons in the line of march. Many smashed the windows of the police station. The rock-throwing, it was believed, was the work of youngsters. Approximately 2,500 children lived in the housing project. Almost at the same time, an old car was set afire in a parking lot. The line of march began to disintegrate. The police, their heads protected by the World War I-type helmets, sallied forth to disperse the crowd. A fire engine, arriving on the scene, was pelted with rocks. As police drove people away from the station, they scattered in all directions. A few minutes later, a nearby liquor store was broken into. Some persons, seeing a caravan of cabs appear at City Hall to protest Smith's arrest, interpreted this as evidence that the disturbance had been organized and generated rumors to that effect. However, only a few stores were looted. Within a short period of time, the disorder appeared to have run its course. On Saturday, July 15th, Director of Police Dominic Spina received a report of snipers in a housing project. When he arrived, he saw approximately 100 National Guardsmen and police officers crouching behind vehicles, hiding in corners, and lying on the ground around the edge of the courtyard. 
Since everything appeared quiet and it was broad daylight, Spina walked directly down the middle of the street. Nothing happened. As he came to the last building of the complex, he heard a shot. All around him the troopers jumped, believing themselves to be under sniper fire. A moment later, a young guardsman ran from behind a building. The director of police went over and asked him if he had fired the shot. The soldier said yes. He had fired to scare a man away from a window, that his orders were to keep everyone away from windows. Spina said he told the soldier, Do you know what you just did? You have now created a state of hysteria. Every guardsman up and down this street and every state policeman and every city policeman that is present thinks that somebody just fired a shot and that it is probably a sniper. A short time later, more gunshots were heard. Investigating, Spina came upon a Puerto Rican sitting on a wall. In reply to a question as to whether he knew where the firing is coming from, the man said, "'That's no firing. That's fireworks. If you look up to the fourth floor, you will see the people who are throwing down these cherry bombs.'" By this time, four truckloads of National Guardsmen had arrived, and troopers and policemen were again crouched everywhere looking for a sniper. The director of police remained at the scene for three hours, and the only shot fired was the one by the guardsman. Nevertheless, at six o'clock that evening, two columns of National Guardsmen and state troopers were directing mass fire at the Hayes Housing Project in response to what they believed were snipers. Detroit. A spirit of carefree nihilism was taking hold. To riot and destroy appeared more and more to become ends in themselves. Late Sunday afternoon, it appeared to one observer that the young people were dancing amidst the flames. A Negro plainclothes officer was standing at an intersection when a man threw a Molotov cocktail into a business establishment at the corner. In the heat of the afternoon, fanned by 20 to 25 mile-per-hour winds of both Sunday and Monday, the fire reached the home next door within minutes. As residents uselessly sprayed the flames with garden hoses, the fire jumped from roof to roof of adjacent two- and three-story buildings. Within the hour, the entire block was in flames. The ninth house in the burning row belonged to the arsonist who had thrown the Molotov cocktail. Employed as a private guard, 55-year-old Julius L. Dorsey, a Negro, was standing in front of the market when accosted by two Negro men and a woman. They demanded he permit them to loot the market. He ignored their demands. They began to berate him. He asked the neighbor to call the police. As the argument grew more heated, Dorsey fired three shots from his pistol into the air. The police radio reported, Looters! They have rifles! A patrol car driven by a police officer and carrying three National Guardsmen, arrived. As the looters fled, the law enforcement personnel opened fire. When the firing ceased, one person lay dead. He was Julius L. Dorsey. As the riot alternately waxed and waned, one area of the ghetto remained insulated. On the northeast side of the residence of some 150 square blocks inhabited by 21,000 persons, had in 1966 banded together in the Positive Neighborhood Action Committees 
Pinak, with professional help from the Institute of Urban Dynamics. They had organized block clubs and made plans for the improvement of the neighborhood. When the riot broke out, the residents, through the block clubs, were able to organize quickly. Youngsters agreeing to stay in the neighborhood participated in detouring traffic. While many persons reportedly sympathized with the idea of a rebellion against the system, only two small fires were set, one in an empty building. According to Lieutenant General Throckmorton and Colonel Bowling, the city at this time was saturated with fear. The National Guardsmen were afraid, the residents were afraid, and the police were afraid. Numerous persons, the majority of them Negroes, were being injured by gunshots of undetermined origin. The general and his staff felt that the major task of the troops was to reduce the fear and restore an air of normalcy. In order to accomplish this, every effort was made to establish contact and rapport between the troops and the residents. The soldiers, 20% of whom were Negro, began helping to clean up the streets collect garbage, and trace persons who had disappeared in the confusion. Residents in the neighborhoods responded with soup and sandwiches for the troops. In areas where the National Guard tried to establish rapport with the citizens, there was a smaller response. New Brunswick. A short time later, elements of the crowd, an older and rougher one than the night before, appeared in front of the police station. The participants wanted to see the mayor. Mayor Patricia Sheehan went out onto the steps of the station. Using a bullhorn, she talked to the people and asked that she be given an opportunity to correct conditions. The crowd was boisterous. Some persons challenged the mayor. But finally, the opinion, she's new, give her a chance, prevailed. A demand was issued by the people in the crowd that all persons arrested the previous night be released. Told that this already had been done, the people were suspicious. They asked to be allowed to inspect the jail cells. It was agreed to permit representatives of the people to look in the cells to satisfy themselves that everyone had been released. The crowd dispersed. The New Brunswick riot had failed to materialize. Chapter 2. Patterns of Disorder The typical riot did not take place. The disorders of 1967 were unusual, irregular, complex, and unpredictable social processes. Like most human events, they did not unfold in an orderly sequence. However, an analysis of our survey information leads to some conclusions about the riot process. In general, the civil disorders of 1967 involved Negroes acting against local symbols of white American society, authority and property in Negro neighborhoods, rather than against white persons. Of 164 disorders reported during the first nine months of 1967, eight, 5%, were major in terms of violence and damage. 33, 20%, were serious but not major. 123, 75%, were minor and undoubtedly would not have received national attention as riots had the nation not been sensitized by the more serious outbreaks. 
in the 1975 disorders studied by a senate subcommittee 83 deaths were reported 82 percent of the deaths and more than half the injuries occurred in newark and detroit about 10 percent of the dead and 38 percent of the injured were public employees primarily law officers and firemen the overwhelming majority of the persons killed or injured in all of the disorders were negro civilians initial damage estimates were greatly exaggerated in detroit newspaper damage estimates at first ranged from two hundred million to five hundred million the highest recent estimate is forty five million in newark early estimates ranged from fifteen to twenty five million dollars a month later damage was estimated at ten point two million dollars over eighty percent in inventory losses in the twenty-four disorders in twenty-three cities which we surveyed the final incident before the outbreak of disorder and the initial violence itself generally took place in the evening or at night at a place in which it was normal for many people to be on the streets violence usually occurred almost immediately following the occurrence of the final precipitating incident and then escalated rapidly with but few exceptions violence subsided during the day and flared rapidly again at night the night-day cycles continued through the early period of the major's disorders disorder generally began with the rock and bottle throwing and window breaking once store windows were broken looting usually followed disorder did not erupt as a result of a single triggering or precipitating incident instead it was generated out of an increasingly disturbed social atmosphere in which typically a series of tension heightening incidents over a period of weeks or months became linked in the minds of many in the negro community with a reservoir of underlying grievances at some point in the mounting tension a further incident in itself often routine or trivial became the breaking point and the tension spilled over into violence prior incidents which increased tensions and ultimately led to violence were police actions in almost half the cases police actions were final incidents before the outbreak of violence in twelve of the twenty-four surveyed disorders no particular control tactic was successful in every situation the varied effectiveness of control techniques emphasizes the need for advanced training planning adequate intelligence systems and knowledge of the ghetto community negotiations between negroes including your militants as well as older negro leaders and white officials concerning terms of peace occurred during virtually all the disorders surveyed in many cases these negotiations involved discussion of underlying grievances as well as the handling of the disorder by control of authorities the typical rioter was a teenager or young adult a lifelong resident of the city in which he rioted a high school dropout he was nevertheless somewhat better educated than his non-rioting negro neighbor and was usually underemployed or employed in a menial job he was proud of his race extremely hostile to both whites and middle-class negroes and although informed about politics highly distrustful of the political system a detroit survey 
revealed that approximately 11% of the total residents of two riot areas admitted participation in the rioting. 20 to 25% identified themselves as bystanders. Over 16% identified themselves as counter-rioters who urged rioters to cool it. And the remaining 48 to 53% said they were at home or elsewhere and did not participate. In a survey of Negro males between the ages of 15 and 35 residing in the disturbance area in Newark, about 45% identified themselves as rioters, and about 55% as non-involved. Most rioters were young Negro males. Nearly 53% of arrestees were between 15 and 24 years of age. Nearly 81% between 15 and 35. In Detroit and Newark, about 74% of the rioters were brought up in the North. In contrast, of the non-involved, 36% in Detroit and 52% in Newark were brought up in the North. What the rioters appeared to be seeking was fuller participation in the social order and the material benefits enjoyed by the majority of American citizens. Rather than rejecting the American system, they were anxious to obtain a place for themselves in it. Numerous Negro counter-rioters walked the streets, urging rioters to cool it. The typical counter-rioter was better educated and had higher income than either the rioter or the non-involved. The proportion of Negroes in local government was substantially smaller than the Negro proportion of population. Only three of the 20 cities studied had more than one Negro legislator. None had ever had a Negro mayor or city manager. In only four cities did Negroes hold other important policy-making positions or serve as heads of municipal departments. Although almost all cities had some sort of formal grievance mechanism for handling citizen complaints, this typically was regarded by Negroes as ineffective and was generally ignored. Although specific grievances varied from city to city, at least 12 deeply held grievances can be identified and ranked into three levels of relative intensity. The first level of intensity, 1. Policy practices, 2. Unemployment and underemployment, 3. Inadequate housing, second level of intensity, 4. Inadequate education, 5. Poor recreation facilities and programs. 6. Ineffectiveness of the political structure and grievance mechanisms. Third level of intensity. 7. Disrespectful white attitudes. 8. Discriminatory administration of justice. 9. Inadequacy of federal programs. 10. Inadequacy of municipal services. 11. Discriminatory consumer and credit practices. 12 inadequate welfare programs. The results of a three-city survey of various federal programs, manpower, education, housing, welfare, and community action, indicate that despite substantial expenditures, the number of persons assisted constituted only a fraction of those in need. The background of disorder is often as complex and difficult to analyze as the disorder itself but we find that certain general conclusions can be drawn. 
social and economic conditions in the riot cities constituted a clear pattern of severe disadvantage for negroes compared with whites whether the negroes lived in the area where the riot took place or outside it negroes had completed fewer years of education and fewer had attended high school negroes were twice as likely to be unemployed and three times as likely to be in unskilled and service jobs negroes averaged seventy per cent of the income earned by whites and were more than twice as likely to be living in poverty although housing cost negroes relatively more they had worse housing three times as likely to be overcrowded and substandard when compared to white suburbs the relative disadvantage is even more pronounced a study of the aftermath of disorder leads to disturbing conclusions we find that despite the institution of some post-riot programs little basic change in the conditions underlying the outbreak of disorder has taken place actions to ameliorate negro grievances have been limited and sporadic with but few exceptions they have not significantly reduced tensions in several cities the principal official response has been to train and equip the police with more sophisticated weapons in several cities increasing polarization is evident with continuing breakdown of interracial communication and growth of white segregationist or black separatist groups chapter three organized activity the president directed the commission to investigate to what extent if any there had been planning or organization in any of the riots to carry out this part of the president's charge the committee established a special investigative staff supplementing the field teams that made the general examination of the riots in twenty-three cities the unit examined data collected by federal agencies and congressional committees including thousands of documents supplied by the federal bureau of investigation gathered and evaluated information from local and state law enforcement agencies and officials and conducted its own field investigation in selected cities on the basis of all the information collected the commission concludes that the urban disorders of the summer of 1967 were not caused by nor were they the consequence of any organized plan or conspiracy specifically the commission has found no evidence that all or any of the disorders or the incidents that led to them were planned or directed by any organization or group international national or local militant organizations local and national and individual agitators who repeatedly forecast and called for violence were active in the spring and summer of 1967 we believe that they sought to encourage violence and that they helped to create an atmosphere that contributed to the outbreak of disorder we recognize that the continuation of disorders and the polarization of the races would provide fertile ground for organized exploitation in the future investigations of organized activity are continuing at all levels of government including committees of congress these investigations relate not only to the disorders of 1967 but also to the actions of groups and individuals particularly in schools and colleges 
during this last fall and winter. The Commission has cooperated in these investigations. They should continue. End of section 1.